Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at Matthew 5 and also another passage in Matthew that we'll ask you to turn to. So we want everybody to have a Bible, and these brothers have some. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and those Bibles are marked at where we'll begin in Matthew 5. While they're doing that, I should have mentioned for tonight's celebration dinner, one of the features, one of the main features of our anniversary dinner is not a big program. In fact, there really isn't much of a program at all. Rather, it is testimonies of God's grace in the lives of God's people over the prior year. So I mention that to you so that you can prepare uh, for a word of encouragement to your brothers and sisters tonight as you have opportunity to give testimony. It's one of the only times, in fact, really the only time, in the structure of our church where folks have an opportunity to give testimony about how the Lord is working in their lives, and that's a great encouragement to one another. So that's our main feature after our dinner tonight, so be prepared for that if you're planning to attend. And then, just before we get into the message, perhaps you noticed that we had the uh, strobe light going uh, over here. That's just to liven things up a little bit uh, for us. It's actually quite strategic, or it was until it went off completely. You guys just shut it off then, just shut it down? All right. Well, I, I thought it was because uh, this is our ADD section over here, and, <laughs> and they're the ones who look at that particular screen, but you guys are going to have to look over here, all right? Matthew 5. A few years after the sexual revolution of the 1960s, McCall's Magazine carried an article entitled, Is Anyone Faithful Anymore?, in which the author included the following story. A young wife was at lunch with 11 of her friends who had been meeting regularly to study French since their children had been in nursery school. As they conversed, one of the women, the group's leader, asked, How many of you have been faithful throughout your marriage? Only one woman at the table raised her hand. That evening, when the young wife told her husband about the conversation, she revealed that she was not the one who had raised her hand. He was shocked and devastated. But she said to him, but I have been faithful to you. And he asked, well, then why didn't you raise your hand? And she replied, I was ashamed. It used to be that people would go to extremes to hide their infidelity. And now you're weird if you're chaste and faithful. And the sexual revolution has, without doubt, contributed greatly to the enormous increase of incidents of divorce since that time. Now, what does the sexual revolution have to do with divorce? Well, it has taken what God designed to be enjoyed exclusively within the bounds of marriage, sexual relations, and made it accessible and acceptable outside of holy matrimony. As a result, people have the sex but without the commitment. And when problems occur in a marriage, one can opt out, but can opt out without giving up the benefits of marriage according to the current mores of our society. Today, in our passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we talk about divorce. We do so because Jesus talked about it. And my job is to tell you what Jesus said and to explain it so that we can live it. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and today we come to verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife 
must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, it's no accident that Jesus' words on divorce in this sermon follow immediately on his words regarding adultery that we saw last week in verses 27 through 30. And this is because we saw last week the root of sexual sin is discontentment. And discontentment, in one form or another, underlies most divorces. Let's ask God to help us as we look at this important issue. Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to gather in your presence with your people and with your word open before us. O oh Lord, truly speak to us. Speak to us your truth, even hard truth, and help us to align our lives accordingly so that we can reflect you in all of our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jesus made another statement on divorce in the book of Matthew, and that passage helps us to understand what he's saying in our passage in Matthew 5. So I'm asking you to turn several chapters forward to Matthew chapter 19, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, and Jesus is, as happened on several occasions throughout his earthly ministry, he's being confronted and challenged by the religious leaders of his day. Some of those religious leaders were called Pharisees. And in verse 3, here's what we read in chapter 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now please note that they are testing Jesus. They want to see where he will come out on a long-standing and heated debate that was raging between two factions of religious schools regarding the grounds for marriage. The, the debate centered on an interpretation of a passage in the first part of your Bible, in the fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy. And here's what that passage says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and then her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again. Now notice carefully that this passage does not say that one must divorce. It does not say that one should divorce. Only if you divorce, you can't have her back. That's what this passage is about. It was a protection for the woman that she couldn't simply be passed around as chattel property. And it was also an incentive to stay married. And yet, over time, two rabbinical schools had developed, one led by Rabbi Hillel, another by Rabbi Shammai. And these two rival rabbinical schools had differing interpretations of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And it centered on the interpretation of the phrase, something indecent. Hillel was the leader of a liberal school of interpretation. 
And so he saw something indecent, and his followers saw something indecent. The grounds for divorce, they said, are anything that the husband doesn't like about the wife. They went so far, and I'm not making this up, as to say if she burned his dinner, that would be enough. The school of Shammai was more strict. It could only be for, for sexual sin. But the sexual sin did not include adultery. It was for other kinds of sexual sin. The reason it did not include adultery was because that was a given, that a marriage ended with adultery because, do you remember what the punishment was for adultery? It was death. And so it was assumed then, if one was not killed because of the adultery, if the religious leaders or the state did not carry out the prescribed punishment for that, nevertheless, the marriage ended because of adultery. Jesus' answer to this question, then, when they have this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They're asking with that background of Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai, and they're trying to, to catch Jesus. They're perhaps trying to catch Jesus in saying something that would get him in trouble, just as John the Baptist was in trouble, for confronting Herod for his own adultery. But Jesus does not, in his answer, deal firstly with exceptions. But rather, he goes back to first principles regarding marriage. As we'll see, Jesus makes an exception that does allow for divorce, but not before he first reestablishes God's design for marriage. Now hear this, friends. That's the way we always need to deal with any issue. We first need to establish what God's design is. What does God say very clearly about what he intends? And then and only then do we deal with whether or not there are exceptions. You don't deal with gray areas until you first have black and white. You always have to have and know what black and white is before you can even talk about what the gray areas might be. And so here's how Jesus responds then in verse 4. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, Jesus says, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is quoting there, in his response, the beginning, God's original design, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And that passage that Jesus quotes, this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united as wife, and these two will become one flesh, that passage emphasizes the permanence and the intimacy of marriage. And that's why I say in the outline that is inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, please take that out. And I call this message a divorce-proof marriage. And here's what a divorce-proof marriage involves from the words of Jesus. It involves, first of all, a divorce-proof marriage is committed. A divorce-proof marriage is committed. Jesus again quotes Genesis chapter 2, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and these two will become one flesh. Marriage is a commitment. And I have three kinds of commitment that marriage is in your outline. The first is this. Marriage is an exclusive commitment. When Jesus says, when Genesis 2 says, that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. Think about that. 
It's the most important relationship that the person has had to this point. A God-given relationship of a, a, a son and a daughter to his or her parents. But now you are leaving your parents to establish a new and priority relationship. This new relationship established by marriage radically changes the priority of all other human relationships. That's why when I counsel couples who are preparing to to marry, we spend some time talking about their current relationships and how those relationships are going to be affected when they are married. It's not that they completely lose those relationships necessarily, but they are radically altered. Your time is now given to another. Your finances are now given to another. All that you do is involved in developing and building this exclusive commitment that is marriage to your spouse. Marriage is an exclusive commitment. But marriage is also a lifelong commitment. Genesis 2 says that this one leaving his father and mother will be united to his wife. The word that the Hebrew word translated united is a strong bond, a strong glue that is not to be separated. But just in case there's any doubt about that, Jesus comments in verse number 6 of Matthew 19. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So that being the case, we never talk about divorce in our marriages. You don't threaten divorce in your marriage. You don't say, if you do this or if you fail to do this, I will divorce you. That is nothing to play with. God says this marriage that you are in is a marriage that you are to to stay in with the exceptions that we will see. It's a lifelong commitment. So don't use the word. Again, when I counsel those who are preparing for marriage, I tell them, make a commitment right now that the word divorce will never come from your lips. You're committed, lifelong to one another. And then thirdly, marriage is not only an exclusive commitment, a lifelong commitment, but a physical commitment. Jesus says, quoting Genesis 2, these two will become one flesh. We saw in our message last week, regarding Jesus' teaching on adultery, some of what that that means. But with regard to to marriage and the one flesh union that's created when a man and a woman come together in holy matrimony, that commitment, that relationship is consummated by their physical relationship. And what they are consummating is a covenant before God between one another. Do you all remember covenants in the first part of your Bible? That covenants were, were ratified and they were confirmed. And that's what the one flesh physical relationship is to do within marriage. The couple comes together and they are physically brought together and that is a ratification, a confirmation, a consummation of the covenant of marriage before God and to one another. And this is what Jesus says. You need to remember, religious leaders, you should not be thinking about where are the loopholes. How can I get out of this? This is God's original design for marriage. It's a commitment that is exclusive and lifelong and physical. Well, look at their response then in verse 7. 
Matthew 19 and verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, do you see that they have misinterpreted what's happening in Deuteronomy 24? Deuteronomy 24 that we read earlier, verses 1 through 4, is filled with if-then clauses. If this happens, and if this happens, and if this happens, then this is what has to happen. So in no way was God commanding divorce. He was simply describing a case, a situation that occurred and occurred all too frequently and was regulating that for the sake of the woman as an incentive to stay married. So they've misinterpreted. They have a false premise in their question that Moses is commanding people to get divorced. And then Jesus replies in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard. Jesus is saying the only reason that we're in the situation described in Deuteronomy 24 is because of sin and sin distorting God's original design. It was not the end of verse 8, so from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, Jesus says in verse 9, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, he says, except for sexual immorality. This is precisely what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. You have heard it said that a man must give his, if he sends his wife away, he must give her a bill of divorce. But I say to you, Jesus says, if you divorce your wife, except it be for sexual immorality, then you commit adultery and you cause her to become an adulteress. Well, with all of that, Jesus' first followers are hearing this. And they're familiar with these debates. They've grown up with these debates. And the idea that there were several reasons, if you were in the Rabbi Hillel school, there were all kinds of reasons that you could divorce your wife. In the Shammai school, there were still a number of reasons, even if, if less. And here's their response in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. If we're going to go all the way back to this lifelong and exclusive and physical commitment, then it's not the party that many of us thought it was. Kent Hughes, Pastor Kent Hughes, says this about what Jesus has said. All of the offenses that were recognized by the rabbinical schools as valid grounds for divorce were originally punished by death under the Mosaic Law. These sins terminated marriage not by divorce but by death. However, by Jesus' time, the Roman occupation of the country and its legal system had made the death sentence very difficult to obtain. Jewish practice and therefore had therefore substituted divorce for death. Thus, the rabbinical schools of Hillel and Shammai were not discussing whether divorce was permissible for adultery. They were not debating that. They already knew that. They already, they already believed that. It was taken for granted, he says, by everyone. The point is, Jesus was far stricter than Hillel or Shammai because he superseded the teaching of Deuteronomy 24 and said that the only ground for which one may divorce his or her spouse is marital unfaithfulness. 
Now, why marital unfaithfulness? Because remember I said that the sexual union of a husband and wife is the consummation of marriage. It is the ratification of the covenant of marriage before God and to one another. When that is violated, when that ratification, that sign of consummation of this covenant to one another, when that is violated, it is so serious before God that in that circumstance, the covenant has been broken. Mm. You know, I've heard people say that you can't allow for an exception that allows for any divorce. Well, I don't make the rules, one. And Jesus says, except for, right? I didn't make that up. So there is this exception, and there is this exception because it breaks the marriage covenant. And those who say you can never make this exception worry. I've, I've debated fellow pastors and read commentaries where they worry that if you make an exception, then that means that people will find other exceptions. But I actually look at it the other way. If a husband or wife believes that they can violate the marriage covenant and the sexual union that consummates it with impunity, they need to understand that that's not what God says. It's not okay. Sexual sin is not okay. It is not only not okay, it is so serious before God, it constitutes grounds that can dissolve a marriage. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that, including all the ways in our technological age that one can violate the physical union that is to be exclusive in marriage. I'm speaking to men and women, but brothers, I'm telling you before God that what you do before your computer, what you do with your phone, what you do with your iPad, what you feast your eyes upon can be a violation of God's rules for the covenant of marriage. It is that serious. Ladies, your relationship to your husband is to be so exclusive, it radically reorders every other relationship. So please be very careful if you don't stay away completely from the chat rooms. Where when your husband's away and perhaps your relationship is not going as you'd like, you find solace and comfort in the words of someone you haven't met across the screen. A divorce-proof marriage, Jesus says, is committed, seriously committed. But then I say secondly in your outline, a divorce-proof marriage is God's will. It's God's will that our marriages be free from divorce, never come to divorce. As I've mentioned above, we have to deal with the black and white before we can see the gray. We have to see what Jesus says about marriage and the absolutes regarding marriage before we deal with exceptions. We've seen one exception. We'll see another in, in just a bit. But I want you to understand very clearly that a divorce-free, a divorce-proof marriage is God's will because, I say in your outline, divorce always involves sin. 
Divorce always involves sin on the part of somebody. Now, I recognize that I'm speaking to brothers and sisters, some of whom have undergone the, the pain of divorce. And it may be that you were the, the innocent party in that divorce. Some say there's no such thing as an innocent party in a divorce. I don't, I don't quite believe that. Certainly no such thing as a sinless person in any divorce. But there can be an innocent party in a divorce in this sense that someone simply goes and cheats on their spouse. And that can dissolve the marriage. Maybe you've been the victim of that. Or maybe you've been the perpetrator of that. Or maybe, as we will see, you took marriage lightly in the past and you divorced for lesser reasons than adultery. Either way, as we're going to see before we end today, God offers forgiveness. Thanks be to God. He offers forgiveness. And we begin to move in a new direction from where, from where we are. And I want you to know that. But divorce always involves sin. Sin on the part of someone. That's why Jesus says it's the hardness of heart that has distorted the original design of God. And that sin, I say in your outline, may be the sin of adultery. It always involves sin. And it may be the sin that Jesus speaks of, adultery. In my counseling of married couples over the years, I've dealt with people who wanted out of their marriage, and they knew this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, that except it be for sexual immorality. So there's an exception. And they want to take advantage of that exception because they want to see their marriage dissolved. And so they concoct speculate and make accusations of infidelity for which there is no proof. I've had this happen. I've had people come to me and say, I know he or I know she is having an affair. How, how do you know? I mean, did you find a note? Do you have text messages? Do you have... And I've seen that happen. And in God's good time, that kind of thing has been revealed as well. But often the answer is, is no. But I want to get a divorce based upon the speculation. God will allow no such thing. But if adultery has happened, and if adultery has been substantiated, then Jesus says the marriage covenant has been broken. Divorces always involve sin. It may be the sin of adultery. There's another biblical justification for divorce in addition to adultery. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to put it on the screen for you, but if you want to turn there, of course, you're welcome to. But it's a chapter in the Bible that provides this other valid basis for divorce. And that other basis is if one spouse leaves the other. Now, I'm going to show the passages from that chapter that deal with that issue. But first, I'd like to take some time to look at other situations described in 1 Corinthians 7 because they cover some of the questions that people had in that day about their own marital circumstances and that many may well have today. Pastor John MacArthur, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, has helpfully outlined the various groups whose situations were addressed in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 7. In the first seven verses of that chapter... Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 7, establishes the general principle that marriage is the norm for Christians, but he also says that singleness is a special gift of God and is good. So marriage is the norm, but singleness can be a gift given by God 
and is a good estate in itself. And then in nine verses following that, verses 8 through 16 of 1 Corinthians 7, he applies that basic truth to four groups of believers, four. Let me give those to you. We're going to see what 1 Corinthians 7 says about those who were formerly married. And secondly, those who are married currently, but married to a believer. Believers married to each other. And thirdly, those married to an unbeliever, but the unbeliever wants to stay in the marriage. And then fourthly, those married to an unbeliever, but the unbeliever wants out. And in 1 Corinthians 7, in those nine verses, 8 through 16, all four of those groups are addressed. Those who were formerly married, those who are married to believers, those who are married to an unbeliever, but the unbeliever wants to stay, those married to an unbeliever who wants to get out. The first group addressed is those who were formerly married. And here's what verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians 7 say. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now these two verses answer the question, should those who were married and divorced before becoming Christians remarry? Now when it says the unmarried and widows, those are two categories of single people. But there's a third category of single person mentioned later in 1 Corinthians 7. It's translated as as virgins. Virgins clearly refers to single people who have never been married. And widows are single people who used to be married but were severed from that relationship due to the death of their spouse. And that leaves then the question, who are the unmarried? you got the widows. They're single by virtue of the death of a spouse. You've got the, virtue, the, the virgins, and they are single and have never been married. But who are the unmarried? Well, whoever the unmarried are, they're in a different category than the widows. <clears throat> As this passage is written to, notice it says, the unmarried and widows. And later in the chapter, it refers to the unmarried and virgins, those who have never been married. So the unmarried are not those who have been married but their spouse died, widows. They're not those who have never been married, but another passage in 1 Corinthians 7 gives us a clue as to who the unmarried are. Verses 10 and 11 say this, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she she does, she must remain, and here's the same word, unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. The word translated unmarried refers to those previously married but who are not widows, people who are now single but are not virgins. They have been married previously. The unmarried in 1 Corinthians 7 is a divorced person. And verses 8 and 9 then can be read again this way. Now to the unmarried, that is, the divorced, and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, when it says that being single is is good, uh, a good state, which he, uh, it is good for them to stay unmarried. 
And by the way, when he says, I am unmarried, Paul's not saying, I was divorced. That's a different word for unmarried there. But when he says this is good, he's saying this, it's a viable option. Not that it's always better to remain single. But if you remain single, you need to know that God doesn't say you have to get married. That it's a good and viable option if you remain single. If you're unmarried and you want to be married, that's a good thing as well. And the point is that those who are single, when converted to Christ, should know that it's good for them to stay that way. There's no need to rush into marriage. Hear this. There's no need to rush into marriage. Many well-meaning Christians are not content to let people remain single. And I've seen this in our churches. So we are cupids, matchmakers, and we're constantly trying to tell people that they, they need to get married. That is usually the case. That is the norm. It's not always the case. And Paul is saying that that is a good estate, and it has many advantages to it that he goes on to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Marriage is not necessary or superior to singleness. And Paul says it actually limits some potential for service to Christ. Now, when it says they should marry if they cannot control themselves, it sounds like marriage is only for the weak. But that also is not what it's saying. It's saying that if you're single and you do not have the gift of celibacy, then it's good and right, and not only good and right, but necessary to marry. It's better to marry than to be tempted to sexual sin. And that is why, once a couple decides to marry, my counsel to them is, marry then as soon as you can. Because there is the temptation to the sexual sin. For those who are single, brothers and sisters, and who want to be married, here are some suggestions that a pastor provides, and I thought were good. For those who are single, but you believe marriage is what God has for you. You don't have the gift of celibacy. But in the meantime, what do you do? First, let me give you some advice. Seek the right person, not just any person. One of the temptations will be to marry anyone who is available. And your priority must be to seek the right person, not just any person. But secondly, seek to be the right person. If you want to find the right partner then work on becoming the right person. The right kind of person before God. And third, until that right person is found, our energies should be directed in ways that will be most helpful in keeping our minds off of temptation. Two of the best ways to do that are spiritual service and physical activity. You should avoid listening to, looking at, or being around anything that strengthens the temptation. Work on programming your, your mind to focus only on that which is good and helpful. You should take special care to follow Paul's instruction in Philippians chapter 4, where he famously says, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Fourthly, realize that until God gives us the right person, he will provide us the strength to resist temptation. He promises that. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
And then lastly, if you're someone who is single, but you believe that marriage is, is for you, that God has not given you the, the gift of celibacy, then give thanks to the Lord for your situation and be content in it. A person who's never been married or someone who was widowed or was divorced before coming to Christ or was divorced because of the exception that Jesus gives has the option of marriage. Verse 39 in 1 Corinthians 7 says this, you have the option of marriage, and here's the phrase, in the Lord. That is, you marry a Christian person. Now, those are God's guidelines for single Christians. But 1 Corinthians 7 gives guidelines for Christians who are married to other Christians as well in these other three categories, and I can go through those quicker. Here's what it says to Christians married to another Christian. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. This is simply saying that the Lord has already spoken on this matter when it says, not I, but the Lord. Paul is saying, I'm simply repeating what Jesus has already said, that divorce is not God's will. And if you are married and you're married to a Christian person, then it is God's will for you to stay. And divorce should not happen except for adultery. But what about a Christian who's married to an unbeliever but an unbeliever, unbeliever who wants to stay married, one who wants to remain married to their Christian spouse. That was a big issue in Corinth, as you might imagine, as Christianity invaded that pagan city. And so you had many mixed, spiritually mixed marriages. Some of you are in spiritually mixed marriages. And here's what the Bible commands for those who are Christians and married to an unbelieving spouse who wants to stay. To the rest I say this. Now notice, I, not the Lord. Now, when he says that, remember previously, it was not I, but the Lord, because the Lord had spoken to that issue. But the Lord had not spoken to this issue. When Jesus walked the earth, he did not address this. And so now I, Paul, am addressing this issue. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now, it's clear then that if you're married to an unbeliever, but the unbeliever is pleased to remain with you, you are to do that. You are to remain in the marriage. Now, why? The passage goes on to say this. Here's why. For, because, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What does that mean? The children are, are holy. I thought we were all born into sin. And indeed we are. So what does it mean? Here's what that Paul is saying. The word sanctified, that's used twice in that passage, and then the word holy, those are all a related Greek term that means to be set apart. And a household that has even one believing participant, a husband or a wife, is set apart, is different from other households. And other people in that household, even if they don't acknowledge it and don't realize it, they are blessed by the presence of that one Christian person in that home. Children that have even one believing parent 
are children who are blessed. They're set apart. They are different from most households in the world who have no believing parent. We're usually concerned, think about this, we're usually concerned with the effect of an unbeliever on a believer. But in this passage it's saying it's the other way around. The believer has a good effect on those in the home. And in fact, the chapter will go on to say that the believing husband or wife may be used by God to win their unbelieving spouse to Christ. So if you're married to an unbeliever, God is very clear and unequivocal. If it's an unbeliever who wants to remain married, you are to do that and you have a sanctifying effect upon that home. So there are guidelines for single Christians who are single whether by divorce before coming to Christ or a valid divorce due to adultery or single due to the death of a spouse or you're single just because you've never been married. For all of these, the teaching is you have the option to marry or to remain single. And the command to a Christian married to another Christian is you remain married. And the command to a Christian with an unbelieving spouse who wants to remain married is that you remain married. And that leaves one final category. A Christian who's married to an unbeliever, but an unbeliever who does not want to stay. And here's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. And that is why I say in your outline, divorce is always due to sin. It may be the sin of adultery, or it may be the sin of abandonment. A valid divorce may occur. Biblical grounds for divorce if one is abandoned by his or her spouse. Now, what about physical abuse? I counsel and have had occasion to counsel exclusively, in my experience, women who have been physically abused by their husbands. And I counsel them, if they're in danger, to leave. Now, hear this. Practically speaking, if a husband, as is usually the case, has made it impossible for his wife to live with him, then he has, in effect, created abandonment. Not by him leaving, but by chasing her off. And so I see physical abuse as a form of abandonment and a valid reason to end a marriage. Now, as with looking for the adultery justification, I said sometimes people will manufacture affairs because they want a way out and they know that's one of the two grounds that you can do that. Same thing happens sometimes with abandonment. We might seek to chase the spouse off. And then when they leave, we say, look at that, he abandoned me. This can be done by pushing them away, moving further and further away from your spouse while living in the same house, purposely becoming emotionally distant in hopes that he or she will become physically distant. Divorce always happens because of sin, not God's original intention. Adultery, abandonment. But then I say thirdly, it may be the sin of selfishness. It might be adultery, it might be abandonment, it might just be, and very often is, just selfishness. There was a song back in the uh, 70s 
after the sexual revolution and all of that, Dave Mason had a song that said, so let's leave it low because we can't see eye to eye. There ain't no good guy. There ain't no bad guy. There's only you and me and we just disagree. That was about Dave Mason's divorce. There ain't no good guy. There ain't no bad guy. There's no sin here. There's just you and me and we can't see eye to eye. And so we just disagree. And very often it's just selfishness. Now in 1 Corinthians 7, it's been about what does the unbeliever want to do? If you're a Christian married to an, an unbeliever, does the unbeliever want to stay or does the unbeliever want to leave? But what of a believer who wants to leave? A professing believer who wants to leave for other than adultery? Well, the Bible is very clear they're to remain married. Now hear this, if they insist on violating God's standard for marriage, leaving without biblical grounds, then what makes us think that that person is a believer? We say, well, I'm a believer, I want to leave. Or my spouse is a believer, but he wants to leave. Is he making a claim of adultery? No. Well, then he doesn't have grounds to leave. Or she doesn't have grounds to leave. And if that person leaves flying in the face of all that God has said very plainly throughout Scripture about the sanctity of holy matrimony, then the Bible would tell us to invoke Matthew 18 and to approach that person and take two or three others. And if they will not hear you, you are to consider their profession as that of a publican and a tax collector. It may be just the sin of selfishness. Divorce always happens because of sin. And lastly, in your outline, friends, understand, divorce is never required. Divorce is never required. When someone commits adultery, that's grounds for divorce. But it doesn't have to end in divorce. And in fact, first of all, first and foremost, we should seek to reconcile. That's the Christian impulse. That's the Christian response. And if that can't be done, then God gives permission for that divorce on those in that instance. But I want to share with you a story, and I'll try to end quickly. At our men's retreat uh, over the last three days, I sat at a lunch table with uh, a gentleman, Keith. And Keith told me his story, and I said, I'm going to be talking on Sunday about some of what you just told me. Do I have permission to use your story? And he granted that. <clears throat> I asked him how he came to his church, one of the churches that joined us at the retreat. He said a friend at work invited him to a men's breakfast, and it happened to be at a time of great need in his life. Keith was in the process of a divorce. He had already moved out, in fact. And he was still attending the men's breakfast, but he had not attended yet the church that most of those guys at that breakfast belonged to. In the meantime, though, his wife started attending that church, and she invited him to come. Now, he told me he thought it was for the two of them to attend together, but no, she just thought it would be good for him, but she wanted to sit on the other side of the, the auditorium. Keith and his wife were in their mid-50s at the time, and the primary issue that had led them to this point was his 40-year addiction to pornography. 
and his long-suffering wife had had enough. They had gone to counseling, but had not derailed the divorce from moving forward. He told me that he had written a note to his wife explaining what he had learned about himself and how terribly sorry he was, but he had not mustered the courage to give it to her. And then one day, as the day of finalization for the divorce approached, she called him and said she had a note to give him. And so she came over to the house. And in it she shared, yes, her extreme hurt at what he had done and how he had mistreated her. But she also included that she had come to learn about herself, that she had her own sin, and she sought his forgiveness. And then he gave her the note that he had already written but had been too cowardly to give. They had a very emotional time together. They determined to pursue reconciliation. They stopped the divorce proceedings. And they've been growing together, he tells me, for the first time in their married life over the last 18 months. And Keith, this brother, wants to use his experience to help other men and those that are on the brink of divorce. Praise God. Praise God that he still mends what is broken. Praise God he reconciles those who are estranged. And in your take-home truth, this is what I say. Christians demonstrate commitment to God in their commitment to marriage. Christians demonstrate their commitment to God in their commitment to marriage. Now notice when I say that, the first commitment is not to your spouse. Hey, everybody stay with me just for a second. One of the bad things about having those pieces of paper, all right, cool, we're done. And everybody starts, you know, and then you've got, what, 50 of those in your Bible? So just, just stay with me for a second. Thank you. The commitment is not first to your spouse. The commitment is first to God. And Jesus has warned about avoiding those things that lead to hostility in verses 21 to 26 of Matthew 5. And then last week, he has warned about engaging in those things that lead to sexual sin. And now today, he is warning about divorce. And likewise, friends, we should avoid those things that lead to the disillusion of our marriages. Now, how do we do that? I want to give you a quick suggestion, and we'll be done. Ask yourself this question with regard to your spouse. What do I want for him or her rather than what do I want from him or her? What do I want for my spouse rather than what do I want from my spouse? What I want for my spouse will dictate how I behave toward my spouse. And if you will ask that question first, what do I want for them rather than what do I want from them, that will radically alter your approach toward them. When people come to me with marriages that are in crisis, invariably they have a list of things that their spouse has not done. And these are the things I want from them. And I try to turn it around and say, what do you want for them? And how can you behave in a way now that seeks to provide what they need? And that means doing things like serving them for what you want for them, asking them what I can do for you, 
and then listening to what they say. Seeking forgiveness for the ways that you have wronged them, even if not as egregiously or as often as they've sinned against you. Seek to fortify their strengths rather than pick at their weaknesses. If you're a husband, what I want for you, my wife, is for you to be led in a godly direction. That's what Jesus says. And if I'm a wife, I want to follow, submit to your leadership. And This is true. What I just said here is true no matter how long you've been married and no matter whether you're married or will ever be married. Asking yourself, what do I want for the person with whom I have a relationship, whatever the nature of that relationship, rather than what I want from them, always will radically alter our approach toward them. Let's bow together and ask the Lord to help us. Oh, Father, your word gives us the instruction that that we need, but it runs so counter to our hearts that we still battle, even though redeemed. Lord, I still have indwelling sin, and it needs to be killed and mortified every day. Lord, it certainly runs counter what your word says, runs counter to what the culture and the society tells us. Lord, thank you for providing it for us. Thank you for light and darkness that is your word. Help us to be people who see it as just that, that it is food and that it is light and it is direction for our paths. And help us to follow it, O Lord, because you know best. You know best for that which will achieve your glory and will ultimately redound to our good. O Lord, thank you that there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have forgiven us of our infinite offense against you, a holy God, we can forgive others of the relatively small offenses committed against us. I thank you for stories of reconciliation like that of Keith, and his wife, uh, Marcy. And I pray your blessing upon them, and I pray that their story would be spread far and wide, and I pray that today's message would have impact on some who are moving toward divorce. And for those who are not, Lord, may they divorce-proof their marriages by reestablishing in their minds your design for this holy estate. Oh, Lord, help us to be a people, whether you are married, formerly married, married in the future, whatever our situation, help us to see that you have the same thing for us. Bring glory to you in the situation in which you have placed us. Oh, Lord, we desire to do that, and we ask for your aid. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.